Let's open him with a word of prayer. Jesus, may your word make us more like you. May your spirit open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. May this time sanctify us for the purposes you have for us. Spirit, please come. Fill us now. We're waiting for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only King, the only Savior, the only light of the world. Amen. I want to introduce you to someone this morning. You may have heard of him before. I had not until a few weeks ago. His name is Dr. M.A. Thomas. Uh, but he was a well-known Indian um, pastor, church planter, missionary. He passed away about 10 years ago, so his ministry is mostly in the 20th century. Uh, but in India, at least, he was a very well-known Christian leader, and what he's most known for is his ministry to the poorest and the most destitute in India. To give you an example of, of kind of who he was and what he did, uh, he began a ministry to those who lived in leprosy colonies in India in the 70s. India has, uh, as of today, still around 750 leprosy colonies uh, with over 200,000 people who have leprosy. Um, leprosy is a treatable disease today, um, but it has such a social stigma to it uh, that people often are driven out of their villages um, and, they, and they end up in these colonies. And so uh, one time, uh, M.A. Thomas went and visited one, he'd never been to one before, and his heart was just so moved for the suffering of the people in this colony, he wanted to do something for them. He, you've, I don't know if you've experienced that, but you see some kind of just suffering, and, and you, you want to do something to communicate that you care, that someone cares. And he didn't have any money to give, and so he, just, he began shaking people's hands. People with leprosy. Leprosy is passed by physical touch. And someone asked him, aren't you afraid of contracting leprosy? And he said, no, I'm not afraid of contracting leprosy. And even if I did, I would spend the rest of my days praising Jesus with the lepers in these colonies. That was just kind of who he was, a man of immense compassion and a man of immense courage. He's actually most known for starting orphanages that um, were orphanages for, again, from kids from the lowest stratum of society in India, kids, you know, basically street, street kids. Um, he also started Bible institutes to raise up people to go in, into the, some of the physically and most spiritually dark places in India to plant churches and create human t- humanitarian aid centers. And, and what was really cool is that a lot of his Bible institutes that was training men and women to go into ministry uh, oftentimes were populated by people who'd come up through his orphanages. So kids who had who had been saved off the streets, come to know Jesus, and now are being sent back into these pioneering missionary um, endeavors. Uh, M.A. Thomas, he encountered his own fair share of persecution. He was jailed for an extended period of time, at least twice, multiple assassination attempts on his life, plus all the various just more minor quote-unquote persecutions you experience in a country like India because of Hindu extremists and nationalists Uh, It can be pretty dangerous to be a Christian in India, and especially if you're a Christian leader, because again, a lot of times Hindu extremists will go after the leaders of churches with the thought that, hey, if we can get the leader, you know, we can, can, the the, the body will scatter. 
And so because of this, these Bible colleges or these Bible institutes that, that were established by M.A. Thomas, in order for someone to graduate and be sent out by the institute, they have to take what's called a, a martyr's oath. It's a pledge. And they say it at graduation. And part of that pledge says this. So again, these are the brothers and sisters going out to proclaim the gospel in some of the darkest places in India. They make this pledge, I surrender this body on earth to the perfect will of Jesus. And should my blood be spilled, may it be brought forth a mighty harvest. May it bring forth a mighty harvest in souls. According to Open Doors International, there are so many people converting to Christianity in parts of India today that the opponents of the church are accusing Christians of paying Hindus to become Christians because they can't make sense of why these people in places where it is costly to be a Christian are professing faith, and it's growing so rapidly. And of course, Christians in India don't have money to pay Hindus to convert. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But again, is it any wonder when these are the ministers that are being sent out? I tell the story for a reason. And the reason is this. We see in the New Testament, and we see, I think, throughout church history, is that almost always persecution, salvation, and spiritual power go together. Not necessarily in that order, but they always just seem to go together. Uh, When a church is, is, is vital and vibrant and full of the Spirit, and people are professing faith and entering the church, opposition arises, always, inevitably. But when those Christians continue to entrust themselves, body and soul, to Jesus Christ, in the face of opposition, God sends his spirit in a powerful way. And they have spiritual power, and as a result, more people begin to profess faith and turn to Christ. And this is exactly what is happening in Acts. Persecution, salvation, spiritual power. And that's gonna be the outline for us this morning. Our first point is gonna be persecution. Our second point is going to be salvation. And our third point is gonna be spiritual power. So our first point, persecution, looking at verses one to three. Follow along as I read this for us again. And Saul approved of his execution. Again, if you remember, Stephen was martyred in the chapter before this. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. I mentioned last week we've hit a turning point in the story of Acts. There's been opposition against the church up until this point, but it's primarily been the religious leaders, the Sadducees, chief priests, scribes. But in Acts chapter six and seven, the opposition moves to a mob and there begins to be popular opposition, mass opposition against the church. And it culminates in the murder of Stephen. And as a result, the first great wave of persecution rolls over the church. And it's so dangerous now to be a Christian in Jerusalem that many people begin fleeing for their homes. They're they're, they're Christian refugees. And they're running out into the countryside. And, And at the center of this wave of persecution is this man named Saul. 
We were actually introduced to him last uh, Sunday, but there was so much in chapter six and seven, we just didn't have time to talk about it. But Saul was there at the murder of Stephen. He was watching over the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. You may think that, why were people taking their clothes off? This is strange, but it's actually quite a gruesome reason. When you kill someone by stoning them, that's a pretty bloody affair. So people would remove their outer cloaks so they wouldn't get splattered with blood. That's the reason. And there was Saul giving hearty approval, cheering on, egging on the murderers, and and even participating by watching over their clothes. And here is Saul. He's a kind of a Gestapo-like figure at this point. He's entering house after house. He's dragging off the Christians to prison. And his goal is not prison. His goal is made clear in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, where it says Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Saul's goal is to kill every Christian he can who refuses to recant. And this Saul himself will one day become a Christian and will go on to be probably the church's greatest missionary and church planter in the history of the church. But he will never forget his role in persecuting the church. He'll never forget his role in the murder of Stephen. And in fact, it'll haunt him for the rest of his life. Uh, 20 years later, writing in, in Acts 22, verse 20, Saul, who at that point had become a Christian, now he's called Paul, he gives a defense uh, before, um, it's before the Jews in Jerusalem, and he gives his testimony, and it just comes up. He says, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. 20 years later, he still remembers this. It deeply formed how Paul understood grace and mercy and his unending debt to Jesus for saving a sinner like him. Paul's not being falsely humble when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But that's all in the future. At this point, Paul is still Saul and he's the most vehement and effective opponent the church has ever seen. And he is the one who brings this first great wave of persecution against the Christian church One of the things I've been realizing that I, I honestly I did not fully know, um, there is an incredible amount of persecution against Christians throughout the world. And in fact, Christians are probably more persecuted today in terms of just numbers of Christians who live in countries where it is extremely dangerous to be a Christian than in the history of the church. Uh, there are anywhere from six to 10,000 Christians every year who are murdered, who are killed because of their pref- profession of faith. And again, in the great irony of God, we also just seem to see the fact that persecution and salvation and spiritual power seem to go together, okay? So you have this, this report that Open Doors International puts out of the 50 most dangerous countries it is to be Christian. If you also get a list of, of the top countries where Christianity is growing the quickest, they map onto each other. It's fascinating. So for instance, um, many people uh, believe that probably the fastest growing church is in Iran. Again, we don't have official numbers because Iran is an incredibly oppressive regime and they don't release this kind of data. But there is a a movement of God happening in Iran right now. They think it's probably the fastest growing church. It also ranks as the eighth most dangerous church to be a Christian in that report by Open Doors. 
Um, many think that the second fastest growing church right now in the world is in Afghanistan. Afghanistan ranks ninth most dangerous country to be a Christian in. Again, persecution and salvation and spiritual power seem to go together. Now, one thing I'm going to be arguing for us this morning, though, is this does not mean that we should just ask for persecution. Sometimes I'll hear Christians in America say, we need to pray for persecution, and it'll be good for us. And I, and I don't think that's what we're supposed to take from this text or when we see the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. Because when we see just the numbers and we see, oh man, we're, we're, we're Christians are being persecuted, that's where the gospel is most powerful and, 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 and we can almost idealize persecution. But we have to remember, for one, persecution doesn't always bring growth. Sometimes it kills the church. And two, we can see from the macro level how God uses persecution to bring salvation, but from the individual level, that's not always the case. Individual Christians who are undergoing suffering and persecution for their faith don't always see how this is leading to anything helpful. I'm reading a book right now. It's called um, The Martyr's Oath, which takes its title from that oath, that pledge that, that the graduates of that Bible Institute in India take. It was published in 2017, so the numbers are a little bit dated. But as of 2015, the most dangerous place to be a Christian was in northern Nigeria. More Christians were killed in northern Nigeria than the rest of the world combined. And it's because of various militant Islamic groups. And there's a story uh, that I read of, of, of a, a woman, a Christian woman in Nigeria named Rose, who one day, um, Boko Haram, which is a militant Islamic group, raided her village, and they went into each house, and they basically said, say Allahu Akbar, which means Allah is great, or we'll kill you. And her and her her husband and her two sons, they were Christians, they refused to say that, and so she watched her husband be beheaded, and her sons be beheaded. She was six months pregnant, she ran out of the house, they chased her down, they cut her up with machetes, and left her for dead. Two days later, health workers show up at the scene of this massacre in this village. They find her alive. She spends months in rehab in a hospital. She loses her her, her child that she was pregnant with. When she comes back to her home, her in-laws, who were not Christians, had taken everything she had, including her third child, and she had to go to court in order to regain custody. When we talk about what our brothers and sisters are going through around the world, those are the stories And we've got to be clear that there is nothing desirable about that experience. And I don't think our sister Rose would want us to want to experience anything like that. So what do we do when we hear about the persecution of our our brothers and sisters around the world? Well, we grieve with them. And we labor in prayer for them. Because God is king. Jesus is king. And he hears our prayers. And second, and perhaps as important, we can recommit ourselves to living for the Jesus that our brothers and sisters are willing to suffer and die for. Let us hear the the testimony of the martyrs and let us run our race with endurance. So that's the first point, persecution. Second point Salvation. Let's look at verses 4 to 8. So the church is experiencing this first great wave of persecution. Verses 4 to 8. Now those who were scattered, they went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and they proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, 
For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and so there was much joy in that city. In the midst of persecution, what is very important here is verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Again, persecution doesn't bring salvation. It's when in the face of persecution, Christians continue to entrust themselves to their Lord body and soul. And so these Christians are fleeing for their lives, and what do they do? They go about like compulsively sharing Jesus with anyone who will listen. It says they preach the word. That's not the best translation, to be honest. That, that's too narrow, of a defini- or too narrow of a translation. That word preach just means to announce. And you can announce good news in front of a group like this. You can announce good news one-on-one. The point is that they're sharing with people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now there is forgiveness for sins now in the name of Jesus Christ for any who will repent and believe. And there's, everywhere they go, they're sharing Jesus. And this brings us to probably the second most important event in the book of Acts after Pentecost itself. And that's the gospel going forth towards the ends of the world. Up to this point, the story's all been in Jerusalem. And the first great event was Pentecost, the promise of God that he would send out his spirit on his people. And that's happened. And people profess faith, and there's been great fruit in the city of Jerusalem. But here, we finally see the gospel bursting out of Jerusalem, bringing salvation to Louisville, Kentucky, thousands of miles away. And it begins with salvation coming to the Samaritans. Again, the second point is salvation. It comes with salvation coming to the Samaritans. Now, there's some backstory we need to know here to, to really understand how phenomenal this event is, okay? There was a thousand-year-long divide between Jews and Samaritans, a thousand years of ethnic hatred and division. It started a thousand years before this when there was literally a civil war in the nation of Israel. The ten northern tribes broke away, and they formed around the capital of Samaria, hence the Samaritans. The southern two tribes formed around the capital of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was eventually conquered by Assyria, sent into exile, and much of the population was replaced with foreigners. And so from that point on, the Samaritans were a a, a mixed nation, mixed ethnically, mixed in terms of their cultural practices, and and most importantly, mixed in terms of their religious practices. There's a lot of religious syncretism happening among the Samaritans. And so the Jews in the southern kingdom, they view the northern uh, kingdom, the Samaritans, as as apostates, as ethnically impure. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of ethnic prejudice going on. The, The Jews really despise the Samaritans. And this division hardened when the southern kingdom themselves came back from the exile and they were rebuilding the temple. And there was a moment of possible reunification when Samaritans came down and asked to help and the Jews said, no, you can have no part in this. And after that, the Samaritans went and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and and, and basically created their own Old Testament, which was a a deviation from from the, the, the Jewish Old Testament. And this division is now hardened and they hate each other. And this is why when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well, his disciples are like, what are you doing? We don't talk to them. This is why it's so shocking when Jesus made a Samaritan the hero in his parable, the good Samaritan. It's like, really? Them? 
And here is Philip, and he's going, and he's preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, and there's salvation coming to the Samaritans. And there is this thousand-year divide. Guys, a thousand years is a long time to learn how to hate someone. For behavior patterns of of division and, and animosity to build, I mean, that's like, you want to talk about baggage, bringing baggage into your faith, like, that's a lot of baggage. But salvation comes to the Samaritans. They hear the gospel and they believe in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. You know, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, when it is filled with the power of the Spirit, has the power to bridge any divide, heal any broken relationship. Um, we talk a lot in our country about the divisions we experience in our, in our nation, certainly politically, even in our churches, in our communities. The divisions we experience in America are nothing compared to the Jewish-Samaritan divide. A thousand years of hatred and the gospel and the power of the Spirit was able to bridge that. You know, in our country, we're always looking for what's the solution? How do we reconcile? How do we, how, how do we move past these divisions? And brothers and sisters, we have the answer. And it's not what, it's whom. Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit can bridge any divide. And so here we have the church beginning its worldwide mission and it begins in the most unlikely place in salvation coming to the Samaritans. Now I wanna, I wanna include a little side note here on the Holy Spirit and I'm actually be talking about some verses that come in the next section but it deals with the salvation of the Samaritans so I'm including it under the second point under salvation. But go ahead and skip forward and look at verses 14 to 17. And let me read that for us. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What's confusing about this passage is that it's very clearly the Samaritans experience a two-stage conversion. So they have a conversion where they believe in Jesus, they're even baptized into his name. But then it's only later when the apostles, Peter and John, lay hands on them and pray for them that they receive the Holy Spirit. It's a two-stage conversion. And here's a question for us. Is this meant to be the norm for every Christian? Is salvation always this two-stage process? Or is this an exceptional case? And what's really interesting is you have two Christian groups on pretty opposite ends of the kind of Christian spectrum who both claim Acts 8 is kind of a proof text for saying, no, salvation is a two-stage process. So you have Roman Catholics who will say that after conversion, there's a confirmation where after the person has professed faith in Jesus, repented of sin, then a bishop lays hands on them and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the bishop, through the bishop's prayer, they receive the Holy Spirit and they'll look at Acts 8 as, 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 you know, the, the, what's the word, rationale for that. At the other end of kind of this Christian spectrum, we have kind of classic Pentecostalism, which argues that after we repent and turn to Jesus in faith, there's a second experience of spiritual baptism where we're baptized the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Again, both arguing this kind of two-stage conversion, and they look at Acts 8 
as evidence. And, and so we have to understand what is going on because it is somewhat strange. I think it's very clear this genuinely is a two-stage conversion process. Is this supposed to be the norm or is this supposed to be exceptional? And here's the thing. For those who argue that this is the norm, there's one big problem with that. And it's this. If every salvation is supposed to be a two-stage conversion process where we confess Jesus, repent and believe, and then later receive the Holy Spirit, we would expect to see that pattern exemplified in every salvation in the New Testament. And we just don't. The vast majority of salvations that are shown in the New Testament are a singular event. There's not a second event of the Holy Spirit. We see this, if we look in Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in the next story, the Ethiopian eunuch's salvation is one event. And even clearer is when um, the gospels preached to Cornelius. He's the first Gentile to become a Christian. And him and his whole household believe, and at the same moment, the Holy Spirit falls on them. It's one singular event. And I can keep going on and on and on and on. The, the vast, vast, vast majority of salvations that are portrayed in the New Testament are, are single events. And so what is supposed to be the norm is what, uh, is what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. When we become Christians and we're baptized into the body of Christ, we're baptized into the spirit to profess faith in Jesus and, and to sincerely profess faith. We receive the Holy Spirit. So this is not normal. This is exceptional, this two-stage conversion process. So why? What's the purpose of it? And, and you know, we're going to speculate. It's not clear. It doesn't tell us. So we're going to hold these conclusions loosely. Uh, but again, I think that the Samaritan-Jewish divide has got to play into this. Um, let's not forget that, that, that it was a live option for in the beginning of their church there to be a Samaritan Christian church and a Jewish Christian church. And from the very beginning there to be a division within the church itself. Thousand years of ethnic hatred. You know, just because the Samaritans believed the gospel did not mean that all of that ethnic hatred and relational damage goes away. Could very easily have been two churches from the beginning. So what's one way you can add validity to this profession of faith? Well, you have Peter and John, apostles, pillars of the church, go down and themselves pray over the Samaritans so that the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit in the same way the Jews did on Acts 2. They're on equal footing. The Samaritans are Christians just as much as the Jewish Christians are. They're part of the new Israel just as much. I think that's got to be part of the reason why. It gives credibility to this, to preserve the unity of the church. A second reason, you know, this is a, a groundbreaking moment in terms of the gospel. The gospel is going into a place it had never been before. And what's interesting in my understanding, just from having done reading, is, is that places in the world today where the gospel is breaking new ground, either going into places where the gospel had been completely forgotten or places where it had never been, you hear reports of miracles and signs almost like we see in the book of Acts. And so perhaps part of it is just 
you know, God's playbook for breaking new ground is, is, is Acts 2. I don't know. That might be part of it, too. Either way, we can say, I think, pretty clearly that Acts 8 is not meant to be a normative pattern for Christians. So that's just my side note on the Holy Spirit, because I, I think it is a big question to address. But again, coming back to persecution and salvation. In some ways, this seems to be God's handbook, where the church is, 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 is living and active and vital, and, and people are coming to faith, experiences persecution. But that persecution, far from stopping the church, just seems to give it more spiritual power. In fact, I think it's probably safe to say that as the church loses social and political power, it tends to gain in spiritual power. And as it gains in social and political power, it tends to lose in spiritual power. Persecution, salvation, power. Now again, I don't think we should pray for persecution. Salvation doesn't come because churches are persecuted. So what should we pray for? We pray for revival. We pray for renewal. That God will once again pour out his spirit into our midst, into our neighborhood. We seek God's face for revival. You know, this is why we, we met with four other churches last Sunday to together seek God's face and seek revival. I tell you what, that was, um, that was one of the most powerful and encouraging spiritual events I've been to this year, hands down. And, and for those who, who went, I think we, that, was, that was basically the, 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 the feedback I received. Was, this was just, man, to be together with four other churches who we're not competing with in any way, and we're just praying that Christ works through them. That was powerful. And, and I tell you what, can I, if I can share something a little bit personal. Um, man, that was, that was, Sunday was a high point, and then, and then Monday was like, down here. Um, one of the hardest emotional days for Mark and I we've had in probably a year. And there's nothing, nothing happened. Nothing happened. It's just the same old doubts and discouragements that you battle all the time all of a sudden are overwhelming. And that's awesome. That's been my week, I'm not going to lie. I don't think that's a coincidence, brothers and sisters. I don't think when you have five churches that put, to, put aside their differences and gather for one reason, which is to seek the face of God and seek renewal and to see the Spirit descend, and God hears those prayers. Like I just, when we were praying together, I just, I just had a, you know, I don't know, a, a deep awareness that God is, like, he's hearing these prayers. And he's, he's going to answer. Pray for revival. And then spe- expect opposition. And then commit yourself, body and soul, to Jesus. And keep going. Again, persecution, salvation, when Philip comes into Samaria, he's not coming into a void. He's not coming into unoccupied territory, but he's coming into a place which had long been influenced by another power. And so this brings us to our third point, spiritual power. Let's read verses 9 to 25. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. 
both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. When they come to Samaria, there had been a man named Simon who had long been practicing a ministry there that was marked by supernatural signs. I don't think there's any sense that we're supposed to read this as he was some kind of charlatan doing tricks up his sleeve. He was a man who was using and who had access to real supernatural demonic powers. Enough so that the greatest in that city, the most powerful, impressive, all the way to the least in that city, listened to what he said because of what he could do. And most of what Simon had to say was about himself, how great he was. So that the people themselves said that this man is the power of God that is called great. Kind of an awkward wording. The idea is that Simon is in some sense claiming to be God, whether he's some kind of representative of God, an emanation of God, an incarnation of God. Simon does these powers and then he proclaims himself and then in comes Philip, and in some ways his ministry looks similar because Philip is also doing miraculous things. He's, he's casting out evil spirits, he's healing those who are disabled, but there's one significant difference, and this might be why the Samaritans listen so closely when he preaches, is that he doesn't preach about himself, but he preaches about another who died and rose again. He preaches Jesus. And in contrast to Simon, he preaches another power, he preaches the kingdom of God, the power of God, to seek and to save the lost. Never be fooled, brothers and sisters. Simon had real power. Philip came in to occupy territory. The world we live in is one that is marked by competing spiritual powers. And we've been so brainwashed in the West, we only see physical causes. We only see physical reasons. But all around us is cosmic warfare. And we, never, we never forget that. This is, this is the world that Philip comes into that preaches the gospel and the kingdom and a new power. And so what is the result? Well, verses 12 to 13, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. The power of God invades a new, a, a, an occupied territory. What's the result? Complete victory. 
The people stop listening to Simon and his nonsense, and they turn to Jesus. And not only that, but the very leader of the opposition, Simon himself, at least seems at this moment to have a sincere conversion to Jesus Christ. The spiritual power that comes from the Holy Spirit that is poured out on Christians when they entrust themselves, body and soul, to Jesus and walk in his ways is a power that is above every other power. It's like what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 18 to 22. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know God's incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God, is, God has placed everything under his feet. Jesus Christ is not only the lamb who is slain, but he's also the lion of Judah. And he has a name that is greater than any name. Yes, there's no such thing as unoccupied territory. This neighborhood we live in is not unoccupied territory. The myth of secularity is a myth. There is no secular reality. Everything is spiritual, brothers and sisters. Your neighborhoods you live in, it's occupied territory. We need to be aware of this. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. Why? Because we serve Jesus. And even in North Korea or Afghanistan, or Iran, or wherever. He is the name that is above every other name. All of creation is at his feet. And he's given us a power by his spirit that can overcome any other power. You never go out alone. That's the hope. You never go out alone, but you go in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, the risen Lord, the Son of God, he calls you brother and sister. And trust yourself to Jesus' body and soul. And he gives us spiritual power that's not ours. Again, persecution, salvation, spiritual power. We need to finish with a warning because there's a warning in this passage and it has to do with Simon the magician. And I don't like ending on a warning. I'd rather end on, I'm like, hey, look, here's some happy hope to take home with you, but you know, I have to preach what's here. And God knows what's best. Simon, he becomes later in church history kind of the, the employer of an arch heretic. People make up all kinds of stories about him. He's the boogeyman in three to 400 AD. But we do have to ask, what is the state of Simon's heart? Because he's a complex character in our story. At the very least, in verse 13, it describes his conversion. There's nothing in here that suggests it's anything but sincere. Simon himself believes, and he's baptized. But then when Peter rebukes him, when he offers money to try to buy the ability to give the gift of the Holy Spirit, based on Peter's rebuke, I don't think we're supposed to see Simon as a Christian. Because what does he say? He says, uh, first that, um, he, he says, Simon, your heart is not right before God. Where is this? In verse I'm not sure where, in verse 19 maybe? It says your heart is not, the idea is your heart's crooked. He hasn't received a, a new heart. 
He still has a heart of stone. And then he tells Simon, Simon, pray that if possible, verse 22, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. But if we're Christians, if God is our Father, it's never if possible. God always forgives his own. The blood of Christ is enough to cover every sin. And lastly, you look at the response of Simon. You don't see genuine contrition and sorrow over sin. You see a man who's trying to avoid consequences. Peter, pray for me that none of this may happen to me. As one commentator says, I think we're supposed to see Simon's profession of faith as sincere, superficial, and in the end, insufficient. He's not a Christian. And here's, here's, here's the, the warning for us, is that it's all over money. It's interesting. Follow me here, okay? There are, there are two... There are two times that sin within the community is rebuked in the New Testament so far, and they both have to do with money. There are instances of great generosity as well. It's not just negative. People are selling possessions and giving them to the church to provide for the poor. Barnabas sells land, but the two times when someone within the community is rebuked, it has to do with money. So Ananias and Sapphira committing financial fraud against the church. They're judged for their hypocrisy and their greed. And then here, Simon, he's, he's, he's rebuked because he thinks he can buy salvation. He's a wealthy man. He's been making a lot of money off all of his magic. There's a warning here for us, brothers and sisters. I don't think Jesus was joking when he said, blessed are the poor. I mean, all we're seeing here, I think, is what Jesus said in Luke 18, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I think Jesus understood that there's something about money and comfort and wealth that has the ability, it doesn't always, but it has the ability to warp our hearts. You know, we're in Sunday school, we're talking about uh, the, 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 the transition of the kingdom from David to Solomon, and it's interesting David was the high point of the spiritual life of the, of the kingdom. Solomon was the high point of the economic life of the kingdom. The kingdom under Solomon reached like wealth and prosperity and military might that never was equaled again. And yet as the kingdom became wealthy and affluent and comfortable, they also wandered away from God. Again, I don't think Jesus was being hyperbolic or sarcastic or just trying to make a point when he said, no, really, blessed are the poor. Luke 6, blessed are the poor. I want to finish by reading a quote from Philip Yancey. He's a Christian author, and he writes a reflection on that beatitude, blessed are the poor. And he gives 10 reasons that the poor really are blessed, that Jesus wasn't being figurative, like we often try to make it seem, but he really was saying there's something blessed about the attitude of someone who lacks. Now I'm going to read these. I'm going to read these slowly. These are the type of thing that you just got to sit on these. But as you hear these, ask yourself this question. Does your heart reflect these characteristics? So 10 reasons the poor really are blessed. First reason. The poor know that they are in urgent need of redemption. Second reason. The poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their inter interdependence with one another. Third reason, 
The poor rest their security not on things, but on people. Fourth reason, the poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance and no exaggerated need of privacy. Fifth reason, the poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. Sixth reason, the poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. Seventh reason, the poor can wait because they have acquired a kind of dogged patience born of acknowledged dependence. Eight, the fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and want. Number nine, when the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or a scolding. Number 10, the poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. And so Jesus said, blessed are the poor. What is the Spirit saying to you this morning? Um, If it's not clear, ask until he gives you clarity. And he will. And then do whatever he says. Let's pray. Jesus, may we as a church, each one of us individually and together as your body, give ourselves to you, body and soul. May we do it with all the joy and delight, knowing that the salvation we have in you is priceless and eternal. You are our God. We know none other. Hallowed be your name. Amen.